Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio. My name is Jason. I'm your host. With me today is a special friend of mine. I can't give you his full bio because that's going to come a little bit a little bit later. But actually, it's funny. His name is Ron. Ron. Last time we were behind a microphone together, do you remember when this was? It was 2018 in Africa. Yes, I do. That do you was remember in that? Zambia. Yes, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> Talking on the radio there behind a microphone, but it's been too long, so it's good to have you with us on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Jason. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on uh, for several reasons. Things we'll get into in a little bit, but probably my favorite reason is just the fact that I consider you a friend and a co-laborer, so it's a joy, a joy to have you on here, and I'm hoping that the listeners will be blessed. I know they will with some of the things that we'll be talking about on this episode. And uh, hopefully people are able to catch some of the other episodes we have out there. Um, I want to bring some of these types of interviews to people for edifying the church and, and spurring us on toward the Great Commission. And that'll, I'm sure, be much of what we talk about. Ron Kranz is his name. He is a servant evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to go in. I'm holding your book here. I don't want to go into too much detail because we're going to talk about that stuff. I wanted to have you on uh, because, yes, you are a friend, but in, in a lot of ways you you mentor me. In a lot of ways, uh, you're not just an elder because you are older than me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not just an elder in that sense. Um, but I, I just love and appreciate your heart. We've been to Africa together. We have uh, broken bread together. Our families have spent time together. We've been in each other's homes. And so it's a deal. You know, Listeners, beware. That's the context here. <laughs> yeah, I thank God for bringing us together. Yeah. You really see the hand of God's providence in our friendship, and it's just really a delight to be here with you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, brother. And so I, I just, you know, I put some questions together because I thought, man, I, I just want to highlight who you are, who God's made you to be. I know for you, the glory is God's. You're the, say, you're the type of guy that's going to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul uh, urges us to think like. And so I want people to do that. I wanted people to follow you as you follow Christ and and learn about uh, what it is God has done for you in your life and what you know he's going to do through you, um, God willing. You are a husband, you are a father, and you are pop-pop too, right? I am Pop Pop. That's what you're calling. Two young grandchildren, a daughter and a a granddaughter and a grandson. Yep, granddaughter, grandson. And to give you guys a little bit of a a history, uh, we were there when granddaughter was baptized in front of the Planned Parenthood in Washington, D.C. That's exactly right. You were there, and you were there when grandson was baptized. And we're going to bring as many as we can, (laughs) and uh, we're going to put our pedo-baptist position to good use. Yeah, I I don't think that's a problem at all. (laughs) Not at all. Especially in front of uh, uh, the gates of hell as a testimony against them. Well, Ron, I just kind of wanted to ask a little bit about your background because, you know, I know your background, but people people should know, people should learn from your testimony. And I guess I just want to hear from you. Did you grow up a church kid? Uh, not in so many words, really uh, casually. So I was, I was always aware of my sin. I, I, I from my youngest childhood, very first memory. I think I was three years old, three or four years old. I remember feeling like I was in big trouble with God. 
and people tried to talk me out of that and say, no, 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 no. But that was, even then, I think the Spirit of God was working on me, and I was really scared to death of the wrath of God from a very young age, and I kind of did what unbelievers do with that is suppress it. And I went, I turned later on to drugs and alcohol, wound up living a debaucherous lifestyle for the young, the in my misspent youth. And it wasn't until I heard the gospel in a more clear way that that unpacked for me, that there, that yes, I really am guilty before God, or I was, and, and, but there really is a real savior and who's really victorious over sin and death. And I didn't know that. I really didn't understand it. Even though I went to church with my folks, my folks were, they divorced, but before they divorced, they were dutiful, uh, choir people and and there was a lot of choir and a lot of that stuff but it was totally cultural never heard the word of god in the home never heard we didn't pray as a family there was none of that it was we just did it it was kind of what we did Mm, yeah so i guess the the next question is is based on that at what point in your life did you feel like christ just apprehended you he arrested your soul and said you are now my servant my slave what when did that come along for you? It actually, I came along perhaps clo- before my conversion, but there was a, it was an old Nazarene altar call, and my praying mm. grandmother and brought me to to church camp meeting, and I went forward for the uh, altar call because I really, again, I was deeply convicted, and I didn't go there planning to you know, quote unquote, make a decision for Christ or any such thing. I came there. I was a young man. I was there to look at girls. And uh, (laughs) so, uh, but I do remember that when I heard that altar call and I started to walk uh, forward, the last 15 feet or so to the altar, I just had to get there. And I felt such a desperation as though my feet were on fire and I threw myself, I actually ran the last 15 feet and threw myself over the altar. And I don't want to get Gnostic about that or, or overly charismatic about that. But there was, a, there was a moment in time when I really had a sense that there was a Redeemer, and that was that time. Huh, interesting. You know, not, yeah, not everybody has that story. I don't remember ever a time when I didn't believe that Jesus died for my sins. You know, I grew up in a church, fortunately— uh, I remember an Easter Sunday, though, praying a prayer, and for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know if that was my regeneration moment, or maybe that had already been happening, and and now it was just a growth time. But it, it became that moment where, oh, this is this is actually really really important, you know? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think I was maybe like nine at the time. So it's interesting how really the Lord brings people to Himself, mm-hmm. you know, as He gathers His elect. <laughs> It's a testimony to his grace because uh, so many people have so many different types of stories, but it's fascinating to hear, you know, how, how God will grip you. Yeah. And uh, you and I, we're reformed guys. We understand it is that the work of salvation is his work start to finish. We understand that, but there is a, uh, there's a sense and we, I, I think you, you start off thinking that you made the decision. It's a, a Bob Cook used to, call it the family secret. And you get in and you realize, no, no, he was seeking you. He set the table for you long before you ever were 
kind of thing. And I find that very comforting because as having lived in a debaucherous lifestyle, I really cling to the truth of that. Philippians, uh, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He begins it, he finishes it. So I certainly don't want to dissolve into a discussion on decisionism or anything like that. It's his work. Yeah, absolutely. Front to back. Mm. So as you've journeyed, I guess, into your life, when did you come to what is commonly known as Christian reconstruction? I know that's a buzzword that, you know, for the most part, people generally have an idea. It's covenant theology, reform theology, uh, presuppositionalism, theonomy, post-mill. Presup is kind of sometimes the introduction to people um, into this worldview, but I'll just call it the comprehensive view of the gospel of the kingdom. So for that sake, you know, what, tell me about that. How was your theological maturation process? Yeah, that's very good. I was a, I was a, a, a vague dispensationalist, pre-mill guy, historical pre-mill, somewhere in there, and didn't really, couldn't have told you my eschatology. But I didn't. I think I was I was post male. I was Reconstructionist, but didn't know it. <laughs> and so I was. So I always had an understanding of victory. It was it was a big thing for me. I understand that Christ is victorious, and so I was turned off by a worldview that presumed Christ to be a loser, and the church to be losing. And although I couldn't articulate it in so many words, so when I came under some solid teaching, so I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, really, I just kind of jumped into it because it made sense to me that Christ is victorious in time and history. And I, I, I attended a, a conference. Actually, I was speaking at a conference, if you can believe that. Mm. I'm speaking at a conference that helped lead me into Reconstructionism. And I was going as a guest of a, a co, uh, a, 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 an uncommon friend, Charles Van Veek, yep. uh from South Africa. And Hello, Charles. Yeah, don't we love Charles? Anyway, <laughs> he says, hey, Charles, he, uh, he says, uh, uh, he says, I'm going to be speaking at this conference. I want you to come and take some of my time. And I said, well, is that okay? You know, with the, (laughs) is that okay with the organizers? Because I only run my mouth here, you know? And so he, 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 he passed it off and I, I, spoke at that conference and but I came under the hearing of really other than in a more than a casual way under the Van Tills and the Rush Juni and the Bonsons and those guys and Martin Selbretti you know and uh, others like him Tim Yarbrough was a speaker there and this pulled things into focus for me that you might say it slowed down and came into focus so that meant that was probably a turning point for me. Yeah, I, I resonate with that because my wife and, well, sort of, I'm more of like, we're in, we're in my office right now, and uh, I have your, your, your one book we'll get to. The first book you wrote, um, I had the pleasure of narrating, and uh, I don't know where it's at. I don't know why. You wouldn't know. Look at this office. It's so clean. <laughs> I don't know where it's at. I, I think I lent it to somebody. Whoever's listening, if you have my book, fighting to win. You owe it to me. Um, uh, but Mary's sort of her journey is very much like yours in that I'm here studying books. I am just devouring anything I can, right? This is, you know, 10 years ago. I'm devouring Rush Dooney, 
everything Gary North. I mean, I'm on eBay, anywhere I can find a Christian Reconstructionist book, I'm buying. And that's why I have amassed quite a, quite the library because I just kept going and go, oh, he referenced this book. I got to find it. Buy. Use copies everywhere. So that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm reading and studying. But Mary, she's just sort of like, well, duh, I've, that totally makes sense. You know, like, of course, Jesus mm-hmm. is king and victorious. Of course, presuppositionalism is what what the church should be doing practically. Mm-hmm. Of course, God's covenant is the guider of all history, you know. So it was kind of funny that it sounds like that was more your story uh, where you're, it already made sense. It was just maybe putting the dots together that, you know, you finally got, oh, wait, yeah, there's this comprehensive kingdom that I get to labor for, and it's great and glorious and big, and it speaks to every area of life. So here I am. Yes, and I didn't have the vocabulary, but I had the ideology, but just didn't know it. And so now I have some of the vocabulary I'd like to think, and and I've poured myself, maybe not to the degree that you have into it, but I have poured myself into the reading of those books. And, And so... But it wasn't the vocabulary that pulled it together for me. It was the ideology, mm. that ideology of victory. And it's, in fact, your favorite verse, or at least it was a couple of years ago, he must reign until all of his enemies are put under his footstool, First Corinthians fifteen twenty five. I mean, that makes sense to me. That pulls it together for me. I just could not abide uh, a Jesus... Christ, who had done all he did, had been crucified, lived the perfect life, crucified, condescended to come as a man, came out of the grave victoriously, ascended into heaven, seated in the right hand of the Father, ruling and from the throne of God, and and and, and who who just can't. The only way he can get the world together is by destroying it. That's not making it for me, you know. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. And so, I, again, I didn't have the vocabulary, but I had the ideology. Yeah. And I was offended by. I mean, I hate to say it in that way, but it's just the way it is. I I was offended by weak retreatist Christianity, and but I didn't, frankly, have a lot of alternatives. I mean, and I don't want to go off on a sidebar on that, but just go to your local church and say, all right, I want to I wanna go preach the gospel at um, college campuses, or I want to do apologetics at the university level uh, as an uninvited guest. I want to go to the abortion mill as an uninvited counselor out front and see what program they have together. They don't have any program for that. It's just a retreatist, um, defeatist, well, that's the world, and we don't deal with the world. We have our good moral opinion, you know, and Jesus Christ is going to win. You've heard the phrase, it always bothered me, is people would say, they 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 would blink their eyes at Revelation and thumb through, and they would say, I don't know what all this means. I just know that God wins in the end. And I, I'm saying, well, which, I, I have a Bible here. Show me where he lost. Yeah, where was the, where was the defeat? So where Anywhere? was the defeat? Right, exactly. So <laughs> he wins in the end. Why in the end? In fact, uh, I was preaching on uh, Easter Sunday, and that topic came back around. I preached on it last course every Easter. We preach on it, the resurrection. But there's a famous sermon. You've heard it. Sunday's coming. 
Yes, and it's it, it's the basic you know, the premise for the listener is if you haven't heard it uh, you're not missing anything. You know? It's basically it's basically you're having a hard time. Things are bad. Things seem dead in your life. Sunday's coming, <laughs> you know. Sunday's coming. And I said to our church, I said Sunday came. Yeah, it's already done. Why are you trying to shove him back into the grave? You know, you're trying to shove the resurrected reigning king back into the grave so you can have a good slogan to feel good about. That's not good enough. He Sunday came and he rose with power yeah. and authority according to him. And it's not to say that the resurrection doesn't have psychological ramifications to, you know, your perceived plight, but you know, that's, that's one aspect. <laughs> that's one aspect of what, what the resurrection does, what the power of the gospel does in your life reorienting your thinking and your presuppositions and how you view your family and how you view, you know, your business, all of those things. That's, that's the comprehensive nature of it. Um, you mentioned the, uh, going to an abortion mill uninvited. <laughs> great. Uh, it could probably be a great book title actually <laughs> yeah. put that one on your list. Um, <laughs> assuming you'll write more, but don't talk about that yet. Okay. When, when did, because one of the things that, uh, you and I, were united on not just in terms of a friendship and a camaraderie, but a worldview, some of the stuff we just talked about, but also understanding the plight of our preborn neighbors and the abortion Holocaust being uh, this massive, ugly fruit on this humanist tree, you know, protected by statism, this idol that the church keeps feeding, uh, the federal beast, as it's often referred to. When did God poke your conscience regarding the plight of our pre-born neighbors? When, when was that? What was that process like? Because not everybody's up to speed on this. You and I know it's very difficult to get Christians involved in this pursuit of justice uh, for various reasons. Defeatism, you know, laziness, whatever the issue. Fear, Fear. cowardice. Yeah. What was it like for you? Yeah, I was, I think it was about 2015, the Lord began to just bother me about that. And and in his providence, I started coming across people who were actually, at least from a distance, I'm talking social media, that were doing things that fascinated me, that they would, who does that? You know, who goes to a, who stands out in the street, in a street corner with a sign over there? Who, who would do such a thing? I mean, that's so that's so boss, man. And it, it, what should, but what I didn't understand is that should be normal Christianity. If we believe Ephesians 5.11 to have nothing to do with unfruitful deeds of darkness, but to rather expose them. Uh, one of my indictments about that, and aside to that, is that if you were from Mars, presumably there are Martians, and I don't believe in Martians, but if presumably there is a Martian, you come from Mars to the United States and you spend a week here, you return to Mars, you'd have no idea that we kill children. Exactly. We do nothing to expose this wickedness. And so I'm looking at this stuff, and then I was visiting a church, historical pre-mill church, and anyway, and and there were these guys out there with signs, church, repent. <laughs> and I said, who has the cojones, you know, <laughs> to call the, because I've been saying that for years, is that the church was in a place where we needed to repent. But then that message was turned back at me. Now the signs were facing me. And they were right. And uh, I, they, had a, they had a website. I went to the website. And I didn't talk to any of them. I went to the website, took, 
And, uh, and what struck me about their website was there was no donate button. Yes. Yeah. And it meant a lot to me. I was mm-hmm. like, they, they wanted me, they had the audacity to be exhorting me to love and do good works. And so I said, all right. And I funneled my way into that program and I had a long story. It was in 2016 when I really, really became an abolitionist, as it were. And I, I was, what I found out was there isn't anybody, there wasn't any, back to my point, wasn't anybody to lead me. We were, I became the leader, like the D.C. leader. Why am <laughs> I the leader? I just got here. But because, in part, I mean, there's others, they're faithful. Jonathan Darnell has been out there for a long, long time. He's been out there, and there's a few others. But as far as faithful Protestants who've been doing, bringing this into conflict, there's anybody to lead. And so we just started. We just, I, we made it up as we went along. We, we just got some literature and started going to the abortion mills and talking about it and, and, and trial and error. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What, like I said, there was no, there wasn't any clear leader. There wasn't any program that you could get into. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly when, what year this was. It might've been 14 or 15, but I was exposed to that as well. I ended up going to the Saginaw abortion clinic and I parked where I shouldn't have parked, but I didn't know. (laughs) I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I just knew that this was a problem and I kind of knew it was a problem, but I didn't really know it was a problem. You're right. You can know of something, but to really partake of it in an action sense, you know, it's a process, but I pulled up to the abortion clinic and Cal's Astro is there, you know, Mm -hmm. Cal, uh, an amazing brother. He's out evangelizing right now in the Ukraine. Yeah. And I am, I walked up to him, said, "Hey, I'm, I'm. My name is Jason. I'm a pastor, about 45 minutes east of here." And he about lo- he about lost it. In Cal's language, yeah, I, a, 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 bic- a a biscuit was flipped. He was beyond himself, and I and I, I it was visible to me. And I thought, "What what's the deal here?" He said, "We've never ever had a pastor just show up." Now that's by the grace of God, because I wasn't doing it before, but I show up and there's Cal, and I just listen. I don't know what I'm doing. I know this is where babies are being murdered, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do to stop it. Other than Cal's been doing it for a long time. I'll just learn from him. So I went out and started learning from him. And, and eventually you make these connections with people. Uh, the, the AHA abolish human abortion, yeah. uh, no donate button, no place to send a check. It's an ideology. It's a gospel centered, gospel driven ideology. Uh, basically applying God's law to this issue. Um, that's kind of why we did the Abolition 101 website to educate people on it. But that was that was my wake up call too. Uh, mm. Was wow, God grant, granted me repentance, and I need to do something about it. And now I'm like, here I am pastoring a, a sizable church in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, and I gotta I gotta go to these people and say, yeah, we've not been doing this. And we need to. <laughs> and uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the people that got on board ended up moving here to Virginia. So it's kind of funny how how God works. But I, I resonate with what you're saying there, you know, with just sort of needing to, to wake up. I need to repent. I need to repent first. When I repent, then 
we'll get to work. Yes, and I have a saying, Jason, um, repentance is better than late than never. And, you know, there's no reason to go down with the flag. There's no reason to, you know, say, well, this is just what I've been doing and hide our sin and hide behind indifference and stay with that same old passivity. There's no time like the present. That was then. This is now. Today's a new day. And so we, that's the God we serve. His who is is ready to pardon sin and repentance. You've said this before. Is repentance the call to repentance? I'm astonished that when I call believers to repentance, they clutch their pearls and act like I've done something wicked to them. The call to repentance is generous. It's a gracious thing. Mm-hmm. Somebody were to we, we've seen that encountering churchgoers before, but uh, man, preach the gospel to me. You know, if somebody walks up to the street and says to you, Ron, you need to repent. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, I'm not done with that. <laughs> no, that's uh, like, like a like a dog on a bone. That's what I'm going to be on for a long, long time. Uh, this side of uh, glory. Yeah, well, I have a good friend, another good friend, and he says that God has him on a short leash. <laughs> so there's like you know, some of us really need more supervision <laughs> than others. <laughs> So but, this, but praise the Lord. The Lord, he, 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 he chastises the son in whom he delights. I mean, it's, it, that's good. That's, you don't want him, look, I don't correct other people's children. You know, I, you know, I don't correct them. I mean, not unless they're running straight in the street. I don't correct them. Right. So I'm, I'm, thankful for, I'm thankful for the call to repentance and the daily call to repentance. Yeah. When I, when I sort of put these questions together and— I did so with some, there's a method to my madness. I, I mentioned here you some of your story and also the theological part, and then also when did God poke your conscience? The next question may seem like a diversion you know, thing from, for our listeners, but it's really not. Street Church, you, you're pastoring Street Church in, in, in Springfield. I want to know how this came about, and you'll obviously know the segue because part of the reason it exists is because of what God did to wake up your conscience with regard to abortion Holocaust. So uh, tell us about street church. What, what's the name mean? What's it about? Yeah, we're, uh, yeah, what, no, what are you no, trying to do? Yeah, we're, we're a church of Jesus Christ. We're a Orthodox church of Jesus Christ and have a Presbyterian background. We hold to, for the most part, the confession of Pierre Vare and then, and other confessions, so it's not that we're an abolitionist church. I don't think there should be such a thing. There are people who believe in Christ and his authority, his right to rule. I had been having people in my home for a long time, and there have been numerous manifestations of people in our home. And of, when I started to wake up to the, uh, the abortion holocaust in our land, I started going out and— we started, Cindy, my wife, had the idea. She said, why don't we, like every other week, have church service in front of the mail? It'll be an open testimony to people who are going back and forth to their churches. We did it at just that time, that they would be going back and forth to their churches and that they could see the reality of what they were cohabitating with only minutes away, many of them. 
And so we did, and we we do the whole thing. You've been, we do the Lord's Supper and the whole nine, and I baptized at Planned Parenthood. And on, while they were doing business, while they were killing babies, we were baptizing the baby, you know. And Rival so, covenants right yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. We started doing that. And my wife, it was my wife's brainchild, and we just went out there, and we had, I think, four people. There were my, I think there were four people who would go, mm-hmm. and uh, including my wife and myself. So there were two people who would go, <laughs> and and I cling. And you know this is me that I cling to the promise in uh, Le- Leviticus twenty twenty six eight. I think uh, that five of you will pursue a hundred, yeah, yeah, and a exactly. hundred will pursue a. Th- 10,000. I'm not practicing witchcraft here. I'm looking at the word of God. And I said, four isn't enough, you know? <laughs> and so I started to ask the Lord to give us five, you know? And, and and so the Lord gave us a fifth. And from there, we we grew into a mega church of about 17 people, 15 <laughs> to 20 people. And and, and and we're on the street and I didn't have a name. And so I said, well, why do you guys want to be, we'll be street church for now. Let's just go with street church. And I keep wanting to get a more ecclesiastical sounding name, (laughs) but they won't have it. These guys are like, no, we are street church. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) And we go to, we go to, we go uh, just yesterday, uh, I and another guy at our church were evangelizing and doing apologetics at Towson University over in Maryland. We do the parades. We're close to D.C. We can we can do a lot of act, activity there. Not not just abortion stuff. We gospel literature, um, apologetics. We can do. We have no building. We have no budget. I like to say we have no building, no budget, no problem. Mm-hmm. So we don't. So all, anything anybody gives us just goes right out. It just goes straight out into the work. And and they seem to be very. The, the people who come, they're very content with this. And we've been able, by God's grace, by God's, we're just seeking to be faithful. We've been able to help. We've kind of gotten a name. People know us as the D.C. crew. I mean, other abolitionist societies. And so when abolitionists like in North Carolina are putting out a bill, we'll go down there, I'll speak at the conference, and we'll bring a bunch of people and pound on doors and hold signs and and preach, street preach, because we do that. We just sort of built for that. And so that's uh that's that's short term yeah. stuff. Longer term, um, we pray about what we're to be doing. I really have a burden for education, Christian education. Um, I'm gonna be 60. My next birthday is going to be 60. I would love it, dearly, dearly love it if there were a Christian school that I had had something to do with, even if just something to do with. I really wish there were, I mean, a real Christian school that raises up Christian warriors, Christian, uh, you know, Christian uh, 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 warriors who are ready to cast down arguments and hide things that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God, who understand his authority of, as you're saying, all of Christ for all of life. I really have a burden for that. I think yeah. I think that will, Lord willing, that'll happen. A boot camp of sorts. Yes, right? absolutely. We're here to to sharpen these arrows so that they can do damage. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it was <laughs> Matt Truella said he uh, from early on, uh, he and he got to it way before I did, but he would put his kids into conflicted situations, and so that they could get those calluses, hmm. you know, that to. to 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 be screamed at and yelled at and and 
flipped off and maybe spat on and maybe and the police are going to be called and the stuff. And so you can learn how to, to, to really reflect the light of Christ in dark situations instead of just going back and forth, going around, hanging around people who agree with you. Yeah, I always say uh, don't send your kids to public school because you'll shelter them. Because <laughs> yeah. that's that's actually what's going on. Because there is rank evil in the world, yeah. and not that our children necessarily need to be thrust headlong. I think there requires wisdom and discernment, right, from parents. But you know, my kids know. My kids know what happens at abortion clinics, and uh, they've been to conferences. We were down in North Carolina last year together, uh, you and me, and some of our our people. And yeah. that's you know, they they know they know. Um, but part of the training ground is, yeah, you, you need to know that this is this is going on. This is an evil that needs to be abolished. And, you know, you think of Gideon's father who sort of compromised with the Baal and Ashtaroth in his backyard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, Gideon, this is this is our God. This is who we worship until God calls Gideon and he goes and gets the uh, the uh, the uh, oxen and tears down the <laughs> altar that was in his backyard. Mm hmm. That's a revolution right there, and and that's kind of what, you know, we don't want. This is where the, I think the church has failed in large part, is we have so many idols to be toppled, and when you don't let your children in on that, in their discipleship process, in their education process, they're not going to know it's an idol. How many people are repeating the same idolatrous error, whether it's the public school system mm-hmm. or... Or uh, whatever, you know, Romans 13, just do whatever the government says. Mm-hmm. You know, my mm-hmm. kids were not, they didn't wear masks. I didn't put masks on them. They're not jabbed. And we are obviously revolutionaries. But I want them to know this is why. Because God, God's word doesn't give the government authority for that. You know, the civil government authority for that. It's a family thing or an individual thing. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you try to, edu- so as far as like your heart on education, I guess I'm saying it's so key to the next generation and, and yeah. how those idols get toppled. You know, we just got to do a, a better job. And praise God, Rush Duty laid the groundwork in many ways for, for Christian schooling, homeschooling. And I think, uh, especially after the last two years, they shot themselves in the foot with education. A lot of people are staying home. They Maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah. But. Um, you know, uh, where I was yesterday is close to Baltimore. And I, I, I have to check this source, but I understand that the average student in the public school or the 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 price per year per student is eighteen thousand dollars. They spend eighteen thousand. No wonder the teachers union doesn't want to compete. And yeah, that's true. and so Baltimore City Schools, their their high school graduates are at about a second grade. That's what they have second grade reading capacity and that's what and 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 even at you know that i'm not an academician and yet i'm on this campus holding court breaking down worldviews frustrating the worldviews of people who are far more educated than i am but they're they have no they they, they, no foundation they're uh, and this this is what i want to get at is 
how are we losing to that? I don't know how many times <laughs> I'll say, you know, I, I was talking to a kid yesterday. He was telling me we need socialism, but better socialism, Finland socialism, you know, not not USSR. So anyway, so not in Venezuelans <laughs> socialism. And, 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 and I said, well, that requires coercion. He says, no, no. You can have your own property. You can have your own everything. It'll be still your own stuff. And I said, okay, okay. Uh, so I paid off my house. I've been working 45 years. I paid off my house. Uh, don't own a, a dime. At what point can I stop paying personal property taxes before the armed guards will come to my front door and tell me whose house it really is? And, and he, he, he hemmed and hawed with that. And meanwhile, another kid comes up to me and he says, and I'm not joking, guy says, I don't think we should have to work. Show me in the Bible that we have to work. Well, well he came uh, to the right place. Yeah, yeah, schools and sessions. The Bible does <laughs> just flip a page, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, but I'm thinking, again, how are we losing to that? Brand, you're wearing clothes. Somebody worked for you to wear clothes. You've got a $1,200 phone that your mother went in debt for, you know. So, like, we shouldn't have to work. What he means is I shouldn't have to work, and but you should take care of me because you're entitled after your 45 years of working and scrimping and saving and being good stewards, you know, and so forth and so on. Yeah. And wow. so, But the point is, is not to... To, not to talk about my big adventure yesterday because I've got a thousand of those, but that to show the folly, there's only one way to lose to that, and that's to retreat from it. Yeah, that's it, exactly it, right. It, it has to be shored up. Yeah, it has to be shored out up and unopposed. That's the only way it can win yeah. if it's unopposed by Christianity. You're right. That's because your your rhetorical question there. How can we lose to this? Well. It's our own doing. One way. It's, it's the only way you lose to it is just by not, you know, showing up. I mean, yeah, I, I remember some conversations with some college students there at George Mason, and you just, your mind's blown at what they say. It's just shocking. Did you really just say that? Here are the ramifications, X, Y, Z, you know, and it's amazing. And that's what the gospel gives us, right? You, you mentioned quoting Paul there. We we are to tear down those, to those, those lofty speculations and, these philosophies that are out there that are really quite simply uh, debauched, you know, front to back. It's just selfishness. It's just autonomy every single time. Mm -hmm. So I guess shifting a little bit, abolish abortion Virginia is something that is heating up, we could say. What is, what's happening there? And specifically, I know we're going to do a conference coming up. Yeah, so we're doing a conference, right? Uh, we have a thing. bill. We have a bill of total uh, abolition. Bradley Pierce was gracious enough to look over the bill for us and clean it up a little bit, simplify it, make it a more specific for our state. We didn't do a cut and paste from other ones. We, we wanted Virginia's uh, bill that coincides with our own commonwealth. And uh, we are putting that forward. We think we have, we have several promised sponsors uh, but whether we do or not is not the question. James asks, that says you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. And so we, you're not going to get something you don't require. You know, you hit what you aim at type of thing. And so the bill sets that tone is we want God's justice 
for the preborn. That's what we want. And we are believers and we're appealing to people from a Christian worldview, from the politicians, uh, to everybody from that. Make no bones about it, no apologies over the Bible being the authority here. This is what's driving it. And so we have a conference now. The, The site is very, very new Uh, So I won't send people to that yet. It's not yet. I mean, it's abolish abortion Virginia, but it's not. It's not plumbed up. We we want to get. We've got a petition to sign and the stuff and all of that. But the wheels are 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 turning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the hope part of the hope with the conference is that we want to challenge pro lifeism. We want to challenge the, the apathy that we see in the church today. Uh, locally, I'm hoping many pastors from Fauquier County here will come. Uh, would love to see you know anybody you know anyone come on out. That's the point. But we want to challenge some of those ideas that are prevalent that are the reason why abortion still goes on unhindered and unencumbered. Uh, certainly, you know as well as any. <laughs> we both know that not only are we fighting the insane leftists who want infanticide, you know post. A birth, but we're also fighting Republicans who are simply shooting down bill after bill. Again, how many have gone on in Texas, in mm. Oklahoma? Oklahoma? Republicans. It doesn't even get out of committee because of these church going, ostensible Christians who have a responsibility to their Lord refuse to do so. So, you know, we haven't necessarily run up against that strongly here in Virginia, but my guess is. We will. No, we will. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, barring God doing a remarkable move, uh, that's what we can expect. And and part of that is an educational thing. And part of it is a setting a new setting a new goal. Uh, the goals have been so tepid. I mean, mm. when you look at things that we call that pro-lifers have been celebrating. I mean, just I won't even go down the road. It's just just a joke it's it, that you would call that anything like better how is that better yeah and so we've catechized the public with our our 50 years you know um i was reaching out to i can't I, for whatever reason on social media i got added to some very conservative denomination i'll spare them uh but <laughs> they don't they they do not have and a friend of mine colleague of mine is an elder in that denomination. He confided to me that they have no formal statement on abortion, none. And they put out some predictable meme, you know, about compromise. And it was like a very good quote by Vody Bacham, you know, and great. And and I, I weighed in on it. I said, when, when are we going to get a, do you have a formal statement? Because if you don't, this meme kind of rings hollow. Mm. And they came back to me and said, and they actually gave me a source that talked about their denomination, but nothing from their de- They don't have a statement. This is the best. These are the conservative guys with the good moral opinions and who, you know, life at conception, blah, 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 blah. And yet they don't even formulate. Talk about being good for nothing, you know, to be uh, thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. I mean, and yet celebrating their conservatism. At the same time. And so there's a big thing going on where these two things have been holding hands. And we want to, the, the conservatism and, and pro-lifeism that perpetuates 
this uh, child sacrifice in our land, we want to break that grip. Yeah, and, and that's just a lot of hard lifting and a lot of making a lot of people not happy with you. You know, you quoted that you were referencing uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7. And no one thinks that they're going to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot. Right. Nobody, nobody thinks oh, I'm that, I'm that guy. Nobody's first <laughs> if you in do, line. You repent. <laughs> right. If you are in that category, yes, you have realized, shoot, I'm not, I'm not doing what I should be doing. So that's the challenge of abolitionism is trying to get people to that place. You know, yes. you're for them to post a meme like that. It's just, well, did you don't see it? And a lot of that's presuppositionalism applied. You know, you got to, mm. Let's tease this out. Let's push the antithesis further and further and further so that you understand what what it is you're saying. Uh, it's it's a lot of the same thing. Uh, I don't want to go off too far in this tangent, but uh, it's it's happening right now with the, the Daily Wire. The Daily Wire has grown immensely, and they want to be the number one conservative news place. And I appreciate uh, some of the abolitionist articles that have been put out. Ben Zeisloff had written one. And so I'm grateful for that. But uh, man, you know, this this conservatism that is its own cult religion is really disturbing because they are elevating this whatever's not liberal, that's us. But even then, you're still, you know, you get like uh, Bruce Jenner right. goes by Caitlyn Jenner. Apparently now he, she is now on Fox News, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know if he she is still running for governor or not in, in California. But what are you conserving? You're just conserving yesterday's liberal trash. That's all you're conserve, mm-hmm. conserving. So with the Daily Wire and you got DeSantis in Florida, who's just there. They're stripping Disney right now of some of their special privileges or they're trying to. And and it's just sort of like rough and tough. But like, where are you at on abortion, man? Well, it's uh, was it North Gary North who said uh, I've heard you say it, but I think Gary North might have said it. Uh, you can't fight something with nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's a Gary Northism. And 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 there's this there's conservatism has basically specialized in exposing the left. That's the whole thing, They're exposing <laughs> yes. the left. And when you get into the dirt of politics, it goes, it, it's such a greasy underbelly. The, they're actually, when the party is in the minority, it helps their fundraising. And so they have no incentive to do anything but to expose the left raise funds, stay in power, and be 2% better than Hillary Clinton. Right, exactly. As though that was the margin of justice. And and so part of what we have to do is extremely unpopular. I just have to say it. It's really unpopular because we have to put some people out of office that we think are good guys. And they will call themselves pro-lifers and good guys and fiscally responsible, blah, blah, blah. They're not godly guys. And so we, in fact, uh, I mean, this is war. This is, this Absolutely. is, this is absolute spiritual warfare. And we have to understand that uh, my friend and your friend, uh, Dave Bubals, uh is running for state Senate um, in North Carolina. We're down there 
beating on uh, doors for him this weekend. And uh, some of us, I won't be there. But anyway, he said, I heard him say it. I was like almost wanted to get up and salute when he said it. When he, he says, when I get rid of my opponent, who's a pro-life guy? You know, devoted pro-life guy. But really, that means... 2% 2% better than Hillary Clinton, 2% better than Margaret Sanger. Well, when I get rid of him, he says, I'm going to take a big picture of him, put it on a poster and walk around in the halls of, uh, of North Carolina in the state house and say, who's next? <laughs> That's what we're doing here. No more Mr. Nice Guy. We're going to start throwing people out. And that's going to, they have to understand they can't bank on our vote. I mean, it's 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 that's that road has gone both ways for a long time. You look at um, the uh, the historically black vote has gone typically to Democrats, and then, well, lo and behold, all that Democrat rule, you know, hasn't ended racism, <laughs> and 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 we see that people on the right say, oh yeah, that's right, but we don't see our own the fact that all that pro life. I mean, in Oklahoma, when I was lobbying in Oklahoma a couple of years ago, I think it was 18, um, they had a supermajority of 40, uh, 33 of 40 state senators. And just as you say, they couldn't get an abolition bill out of committee. They had seven pro-lifers, even on follow the court, too. The court, we're always told that the Supreme Court, oh, SCOTUS, that we just need one more. We've had, we've had, we've had a majority. We have a majority now. Right now, yep. Right now. So riddle me this, as I like to say, Batman. You know, <laughs> why is it that, why is there still a Roe v. Wade? Why didn't they just, as soon as they got a case in the, in the winter, why didn't they just right away? Yeah, just go ahead, just turn it over. Turn and, it over. You can do this yeah, now. Right. No, no, we need one more. But now we need two more because of Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Who replaced uh, uh, Stephen uh, Breyer. Uh, Breyer? Is that his last name? I forget yeah, all of a sudden. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's the same old song and dance. Same old song and, and dance. And, and people still think that that's going to be the answer. I mean, yes. even here in Virginia, we got a Republican governor, Youngkin, who seems, apparently he professes Christ, but... Uh, I would love to spend some time with him uh, to to really talk through that and say, hey, you know, it's sort of like a collective sigh of relief happened because, I mean, Northam was off his rocker anyway, talking about post, you know, birth infanticide. But it's like this whole the this I, I understand why the left is frustrated with the quote unquote Trump cult yeah. because it's not really principled. It's just, well, our guy talks smack. And yeah, you know, you're looking at stage four cancer or stage one cancer. It's still cancer, but, you know, maybe one's a little less uh, aggressive and hasn't metastasized as much. But um, either way, that's the political landscape that we're that we're up against. So uh, this is kind of shift gears because I really wanted to talk about this as well. Your work in Africa. We went together in 2018 and, you know, I had been to Africa before we went to Zambia and it was, uh, you know, one of my fondest memories, Mm -hmm. honestly. I went back in 2019 by myself and I'm, I'm trying to consider going this year, especially now that some of the, uh, you know, mass mandate stuff and all this other stuff is mm-hmm. seemingly going away. But I really want people to hear from you with your work in Africa. So, you know, what have you done? How many years have you been going? 
And, you know, what, what is your, how does that tie into some of the things we're talking about? Yeah, I've been doing it about a dozen years. I started uh, at the invite of our friend, Cheryl Funvake. He asked me to come over and he said there wasn't anybody who was doing what I was doing, whatever I was doing, uh, <laughs> that, that he thought needed to be there. And so I started going and pretty quickly I began being drawn to war-torn places. So while I've been to Zambia with you, and I'll go to Zambia again, Lord willing, um, I really have a heart for war-torn countries like Congo, Burundi, Nigeria, to a lesser degree. It's a different kind of war there. It's more of a cultural war between the North and the South, the Muslims and the Christians. Um, Zimbabwe. Cameroon. Zimbabwe's not so they're they're just oppressed. They're, they're just, just abused yeah. by their by their by their messianic uh president, uh who, who replaced their messianic president, Robert <laughs> Mugabe, anyway. So that's another Zimbabwe is a different story. But but the war-torn places were where I started to go because n- nobody wanted to go there. That's what got me is mm. when Charles said, I want you to go to Congo. And I said, well, why? What do you want me to do in Congo? He says, here's the thing. Nobody wants to go there. And that just, I don't know, it's just my, my, my heart really broke for that, for a place that nobody wants to go to. And so I started going, and this endeared me to them because as soon as, matter of fact, the first time I preached in Congo, I know you know this. They were rioting outside when I. They were going to war. They were. They were actually having a big uprising over Joseph Kabila, the former despot there, who's now out of there, thank God, and replaced by a pretty good guy, Felix Shishiketi. But I'm preaching, and like they are rioting. The, the results of the election that was just released, and and they're like a a, a powder keg, hmm. and. And I just, but God, you know this of me, I don't have good hearing, and God gave me even worse hearing on that night. I didn't hear them rioting out there. I mean, they're out there making a rocket. And all of the people there were about in that church, I remember it well, there were about 600 people there in that church, and it was dark and kind of scary, you know what I mean? And but they, anyway, so they're rioting out there, and I just kept going like I didn't hear them because I didn't hear them, and I just kept <laughs> going in. You know, you've heard me preach a lot of times, and I just kept going full bore. And so the next day, like three thousand people showed up because they said, "Who's this guy who preaches in the middle of a riot? We got to hear from That's this amazing. guy." It's <laughs> It's funny. It's all, you know. So anyway, I love that story. and then it built from there, and then I wound up on national television, and I became very, very well. Um, um, burst in that culture, started learning French and even though a little Swahili, and I mean a little, but a little, enough to keep people on their toes. And uh, that, that really, that was the thing. My heart went out to, the, to those who have never, never lived in a stable environment. It just bothered me. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's what got me into, into Africa. And then from there, I mean, yes, there have been the orphanages and the things like that, those kind of outreaches. But more and more, I'm going to, I'm getting away from the dog and pony show, you know, the big massive conferences with thousands and thousands of people, although that's fine. You get treated like a king. But (laughs) uh, 
it's really about leadership training. Who's going to be next? Who's going to get this, get a hold of this? Who can press this further than I ever did? And so I've begun investing in that. Uh, last year, as you know, in March, I was in uh, South Africa uh, at a conference for um, pastors against church closures. And those guys were getting a beating. I mean, and I mean by beating, I mean a beating. Like they were being beaten up um, for going to church and had their money, their assets frozen, the whole nine. I mean, wicked, wicked stuff over in South Africa. So those are my kind of guys, you know. So I went over there and led a conference and went full-on Reconstructionism, and it blew their minds. I mean, they, they because one thing about Africa, I, you may get to this, and I don't want to run ahead, but one thing— there are problems with Africa. There are a lot of problems yes, with Africa. Are. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they lack diligence uh, and they don't see think futuristically. You know, there's no word in most, in, in fact, any tribal language I'm familiar with for future. They don't have a word for it. No, they describe. have to translate it. That's a distinctly Christian uh, idea. Yeah. future it's all right now they don't think and you've seen this firsthand is they think okay well i'm late because the there was a lot of traffic okay well when was there not a lot of traffic you know well there's a lot of traffic so they don't think in advance that's a problem that we that we struggle with is getting into a future mindset what does this lead to what does this go to how does my life now change a hundred years from now, you know, what's going to happen here? That's a problem. That's a major problem. But one thing about the Africans that ties into my, and I know your heart for the gospel is they understand, especially in war-torn countries, they understand winners and losers. Mm, yeah, they do. They don't retreat from that idea. We, oh gosh, you know, we we get all upset and, you know, grab our purse and we're worried because somebody might get offended and all that. They don't care if anybody's offended. They've been, they, they've been living under this kind of a situation. It's our turn to eat now, you know. So exactly. When, Great so, way to put it. Yeah, right. So they understand they they understand what it's like to build and have child soldiers light your stuff on fire and and they've had it. They want to win. And and what I'm telling them is, yeah, the gospel intends for that. But they have a bad idea about what winning is. For them winning is money or winning yada yada. But 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 I will take somebody who has a mind for conflict and winning, um, not at the expense of people, but but they understand that. They understand they're winners and losers. And I think that's a, in that sense, Jason, they are leaps and bounds ahead of Americans because we just can't accept the we don't. We don't even know, think we're in a fight, let alone that we can win. Well put. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's kind of what I was going to ask, too, is just some of the differences in how we function. I mean, when we were over there, do you remember the taxi driver that we were talking to? He kept putting, you know, what, maybe 10 kwacha or something, very little amount in his gas tank, a dollar. Yeah, a dollar. He can't even like fill his car up because he's a taxi driver and he doesn't really have a plan for the day. He doesn't have a plan for the future. Mm -hmm. And we kept saying, look, man, like your business is going to go better. Just fill that puppy up, fill your tank, put all those leaders in there, get the petrol in, run your business. Stop wasting your time filling up every mile. 
you know, like that's what they were doing. And so I remember yeah. the next day, I think we got him again and he had a full tank and we were very impressed. Yeah. Like, very impressed because that's, that's typical is you'll, they'll pick you up and then they go to the petrol station. Yeah. Cause now they have, well, what happened to that money? But then they'll turn around and they have, they have nice shoes. I mean, we, we had a widow in Congo. Uh, she had, a uh, widow of a pastor, and we were trying to do something for her and help her uh, through that impossible situation. And and we set her up in business. We're going to set her up into a sewing business. And so she's, but I got Oscar, my Oscar Wakandwa, another another Congolese, a Congolese uh, pastor friend of mine. He said, "Yeah, you you can't. What you can do is give her enough to just get started." Because if you don't, if you give her, if you got $500 for her to help her with her business, the next day, her she's going to have a Gucci bag and she's going to have shoes and her kids are going to be wearing Michael Jordan shoes and stuff. You, they don't think, I'm talking about the Christians. And right, so right. you've got to break that, that, that you've got to put them into a, a futuristic way of thinking. Yeah. And that's where we win. It's kind of interesting because I was. Just, it just dawned on me that in a lot of ways, eschatologically speaking, most Christians today are futuristic so much that they have no present, you know, <laughs> currency to work with. That's true. That's so it's almost like an opposite problem in that regard. Yeah, totally. Well, we're uh, we're at our hour mark, and I want to kind of land the plane a little bit, and I want to talk some about your about your books. So you have written two books, uh, "Fighting to Win." Well, actually, you, you've written some in the past, yeah. but I want to focus on these. Fighting to Win was your first book, um, and then your latest was The Beast, the Whore, and the Forgotten Vision, which is quite an audacious title. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> impressive stuff there. Uh, how did those kind of books come into existence, and what are you trying to communicate with them? Yeah, uh, the first one, the, the fighting to win and other things I didn't win in Sunday school is really the back half of that that really tells the story. Yeah, yeah. Is we don't have a plan for victory. We've been talking about that. But I followed the tact. I followed a lot of that book, as you know, was based on the book of Nehemiah and the various spiritual attacks that he came under uh, to start he, he is seduction. To, to save his own life, to prosper uh, according to man's idea of prosperity and safety. And what do you do when you, when, when you're, when you're, when you're, and I believe that's probably the number one and most effective attack against Christians is one of seduction. It's not, I'm not talking necessarily about sexual infidelity, although it couldn't, doesn't mean to disinclude that either, but that just this need for safety, the constant need for safety. And then I looked at how Nehemiah dealt with that. And then I pushed forward to the greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, and how he dealt with safety. Remember, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you know, right. because he was teaching him, trying to, he was trying to disciple Jesus, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> Who's uh, the rabbi here uh, in this situation? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, 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 we can't go to Jerusalem. The Jews of late sought to stone you there as though, as though safety was the idea, as, the, as though the goal is, and we say we share this with 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 Peter is we think the goal is to die surrounded by our friends and some impotent, useless um, comfort. 
And what I found is, and, and this is just not a, not hard to know, is that when you start with, whatever you start with, you end with. If you start with safety, you're going to always have another bar to clear. You're going to need another thing, which is why we have the mask and we have the vaccines and we have the this and the uh, that and the other. Is when we, I've, I've started to re- rebuke people for when I travel, tell me to be safe. I mean, why don't you just tell me to get a mistress, you know? I mean, yeah, like, I don't want to be thinking about safety. I want to be thinking about winning. And so that whole book sort of followed that idea about what it mean, meant to be devoted to the Lord in the middle of spiritual attack, threats, threats of violence, um, uncertainty, that kind of thing, and how Christ did, and then ultimately how we're to seek to— uh, to, to, to serve Christ in a more broader and ro- robust way than we, we've been taught. Uh, I, I think I went to the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And they, they, they tell Jesus, send the multitudes away that they may get and buy and eat however it goes. Well, that's what we've been doing. We've been sending the multitudes away for everything, for education, for jurisprudence, for, for everything, for career choices, for everything. And he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And that's my exhortation in the book is they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat because the one doing the feeding is going to be the one to, to hold the day. You know, it's not going to be some mandating guy up here on something, something hill. It's not going to be that guy. It's going to be the guy who actually produces. Right. And so I urge in the book to be tangibly productive for the kingdom of God. I think that's one of my favorite things about the book because I it just dawned on me with my book, Health for All of Life. I, I There's a principle, what you just shared, that I didn't think of until you just said it, well, you know, don't send them away to the CDC, you heal them. And so there you go, that's an application. But one of the things I love about your book is your ability to, your writing style is sort of like, here's here's a scriptural passage and bang, bang, bang. I've, I've always appreciated that about you is your ability to just look at a passage and say, well, holy smokes, this applies in a myriad of ways. Here's how it applies and here's how it applies. Because you also in the book talk a lot about Africa, some of your stories and and your experiences there that kind of dovetail into the application. Uh, so I would encourage listeners to get the book, Fighting to Win, and other things I didn't learn in Sunday school, narrated by yours truly, yes. which can be found on your blog, your website. Abs- Amazon, or yeah, just go Amazon. to Amazon and get it. Yeah, sure. Get a copy there, um, and or you know, visit ronkrons.com. Yeah. So le- the, the latest book, give me kind of a snippet, because... You know, people just need to go buy it, go get it on Amazon. But the beast, the whore, and the forgotten vision. What? It, tell us a little bit about that. What's kind of the main nutshell yeah. version of that? that What's the elevator more. speech? That required a lot more out of me because it was outside of my wheelhouse. I really had to play the accommodation. I really had to go and do my homework, and I and I made the connection to the beast being the messianic state. And the whore being the covenant people, the compromised covenant people of God who are in bed with the state, who view, in fact, the state as the highest authority. Think of when Pilate 
presents Jesus before the Jews. What shall I do with your king? We have no king but Caesar. Well, what shall I, behold your king, rather. Behold your king. Well, we have no king but Caesar. And then they say, what shall I do with your king? Crucify, away with him, away with him, twice. Crucify him. Twice they say that, crucify him. And then, and then you just a little bit of knowledge of Scripture says that Caesar didn't love them back. And he came back and crushed them. Yeah. And he destroyed them. I was talking to a woman just yesterday, just a slight aside. Uh, and she, I, I was telling her, listen, it's going to be Christ. And if it's not Christ, whoever you choose to be your Messiah is going, they're not going to wash your feet. You're going to wash their feet. And that's something that, but I explore the symbiotic relationship between the two. I think you know that the Romans had something with to do with appointing chief priest in that time. And so we have a sign on abortion, uh, out in front of abortion mills. This abortion mill is open with the permission of the local church. But we could also have that same sign outside of most churches. This church is open with the permission of the state. That's a good point. Yeah. And so we, we are so in bed with the state. If you don't believe me, go back two years ago and look how dutifully the state was obeyed. Are you going to tell me that we, can you imagine what God would have done? How much he would pour his blessings out on us if we were as dutiful to seek his law and seek to obey him as we were to obey Anthony Fauci and everybody else who came down uh, with their with their Messiah complexes and their omniscience complexes with their 14 days to flatten the curve. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah. And so, and so, I, I explore that, and then the forgotten vision really has to do with the non-truncated gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I think it's in Isaiah, in the 32nd chapter, the Lord is our judge, he's our lawgiver, he's our king, he will save us. So you have these four offices. Well, the church has modified that to just he's our savior. And that's not good enough. That's not, And he's not going to be kindly disposed to people who decide autonomously that he doesn't deserve to be the king or the judge or the lawgiver. And so we have to reignite that vision of the total Christ, the king, the lawgiver, the priest, all of it, to put him at the top of the top of it all, to that he may be, that he may reign until his enemies are placed Absolutely. under his footstool. And so that that is a Quick, quick rundown. I, I uh, explored it from a variety of directions. First of all, I had this pie. Uh, I had this pie in the sky idea that if we could go back to sixty years ago or something, that yeah. you know there was this Rockwellian age that we had missed, and if we could get back on that front porch in Indiana somewhere and suck down lemonade, and things would be Apple nice. Pie. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? And baseball and hot dogs, <laughs> and and. Uh, I didn't find it. I went back. I looked at the uh, looked at the IRS when uh, when uh, when when they came into power. I watched how the church behaved when they were given tax immunity, and I went back further and I looked at the tent meetings. You know, and so you have and Fanny Crosby and the songs and the Pietistic "Take the World," my least favorite song ever. "Take the World and Give Me Jesus," as though, God bless Fanny Crosby. But <laughs> I mean, you know, as though the world were hers to sacrifice. Right, Take the exactly. world and give me, give me Jesus. No, take the world. Take the world for him 
and give me Jesus. It belongs to him. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And, and so we've had this pietism. I went back hundreds of years. I kept looking for a stopping point. I talked to Martin Selbretti when I was getting going back and doing my research. He says, yeah, that's, this goes back hundreds of years. Pietism didn't just start. It didn't just start at the, uh, at the uh, French Revolution. You know, when we retreated from everything there, from science and from medicine. And so we've got a lot of weed pulling to do. And that's what I sought to establish there, that this isn't the end. We're right in the middle somewhere. And we got to go back and get right what we got wrong for 500 and 300 and 200 and 100 years ago and 50 years ago and start to repent of these things. And... And we'll see, and God will pour his blessings out on us. He'll again show his, himself to be faithful and, 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 and victorious in time and history. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, it's funny you mentioned the French Revolution because that's the chapter I had pulled open because I really enjoyed your study of Descartes. And there's just been so much. It's a rich book. Um, Ron, you write in a way that I think is... is uh, it's challenging. It's uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of reminds me of R.C. Sproul. Uh, just you're taking big concepts and you really just try to boil it down. There's so many things you could you could say. Sometimes, I mean, I've written some books, too. You know how it, it can be a challenge to it's not so much. What do I say? It's what don't I say? Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Yeah. And that's a that's a difficult thing, because then you, you turn a 60,000 word book into a, uh, you know, 150,000 word book. And <laughs> then <laughs> exactly. you said so much. But I think I, I do want our listeners to go to get the book. It's a phenomenal read. I got to see a very early draft um, and kind of, you know, walk through it. And and uh, I just loved what you've done with it. So much of the modern church today is uh, just off the rails in so many ways. And you trace that history um, sort of, I've, I'm in the, in the Dewey Verd school of thought with regard to these, these uh, dialectical tensions, these ground motives. We need to be thinking Christianly about these things. We need to be thinking from the, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration sort of uh, blueprint and not be regurgitating, you know, Thomas Aquinas's. uh, nature grace dialectic where all the spiritual things are up there, but down here we just sort of do what we do and there's no connection. And, and too many Christians are regurgitating those false ground motives, those false presuppositions about the world and the cosmos. And, and, and we need to be able to get back to, to the scripture. And I think that your book uh, is phenomenal in accomplishing that. So well done. Make sure you Guys, get a copy well, of it. I, I want to thank you for that. And I just want to also publicly thank you for your help in the text because I was outside of my wheelhouse and and wasn't outside of yours. And so I ran it by you to read it. And so you gave me the confidence to realize that I really was on to something. I wasn't just I wasn't just pretending to be an academic. I really was had my finger on the pulse of something yeah. really, really big, actually. Yeah, and a, very big. And Selbridi was gracious enough to write a forward for me, and he did for you too. Yes, so, he did. And the uh, forward of Selbridi of Martin is 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 better than the rest of the book. I know. <laughs> he, when, he ruined your book. He man. did. He did. <laughs> 
He, when he wrote the Ford for Health Thrall of Life, I thought, man, we need to just turn that into a book. I mean, <laughs> yeah, phenomenal. He is awesome, man. He, he does. He does a great, great stuff. Yeah. I love Martin. I yeah. appreciate him. Um, so, yeah, get the books. Check them out. Ron, one final question. You have one sermon left. What are you preaching? Yeah. Um, the resurrection. Yeah. I would preach. I would probably start. And one of my favorite texts in all the Bible in Second Kings in the first chapter, and there's a wicked king, Ahaziah, he's up at the top of his lattice looking out on what he believes to be his kingdom, and he falls. And he, he's mortally wounded, but he doesn't die. And he, so he sends for prophets of Baal. The prophet intercepts them and says, yeah, go back home. Tell him he will surely die because he has not. Sir, he served the wrong God. He's not dying of his injuries. And I would liken that to... Uh, Satan, having been mortally wounded at Calvary, and uh, and so then Satan, doing the only thing he can do, then goes and threatens the prophet, sends captains of fifty, two of them, and then fire comes down on him. He sends a third guy, and that guy goes up, and the distinction is made there when the third guy does not call him the king. He says the first two guys. You can read the text for yourself. They they. They say, the king, man of God, the king has said, come down. And, but the third guy went up and, and did not call him the king. And because the devil is no king, and that's the connection I like to make. He's a fallen, defeated foe, getting ready to die, already mortally wounded, uh, impotent, only able to rob, kill, and destroy, burn, and tear things up, send his believers to to into the way uh, into hardship for him and then contrast that to Jesus Christ who is the legitimate king the ruler of the kings of the earth and I will probably go and if you'll just indulge me I know we're probably over time but that's okay no um and Colossians just a splendid discourse here uh speaking of jesus he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation by the way listeners um take note of the repetition of the word all over all creation for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, all things. And then skip over to the second chapter, and maybe I'll just, I'll probably close right about here. And the, picking it up in the 13th verse, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know, does it dawn on anybody that you want all your trespasses forgiven, but don't want him to have all authority? That, that's, that's probably a, not the way to approach it. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, having, take, having uh, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, I should quickly say, he did not come to redeem the law. There's nothing the matter with the law. The law is fine. It's perfect. Uh, and having, but here's the thing, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. Dead men don't triumph. That we have a dying former pseudo king and Satan who is 
can do nothing to resist the onslaught, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And there you have Christ risen, crucified, risen, and triumphing over thrones and principalities and powers and anybody else who comes along to stand in his path. And so, as you like to say, wave the white flag. You know, Christ is king, wave the white flag. You might as well beat the rush. And so... uh, So that would be my sermon is you have two different kings and one of them is legitimate and one is not and start acting like it. I probably, that's where I would probably go. There you got a, what, three, five-minute sermon of what I would say. We'll let you uh, expand on that when the time comes. (laughs) Well, uh, Ron, I I love you, brother. I appreciate you being here. Love you too, brother. Thank Thank you you. for your work and your ministry. And I I had opened up to Jeremiah 7 because— uh, it's a text that I love and appreciate, and it kind of reminds me of you. Remember, the Lord sends Jeremiah to the gates of the house of, of Yahweh and says, hey, you know, tell these people, do good, amend your ways, you know. And, and he says, uh, do not trust in lying words, saying, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. It's interesting that Jeremiah calls them lying words. Mm-hmm. Here is a man, this kind of reminds me of your work, here's a man who loves the church, enough to tell her the truth, to tell her the truth about the lying words. You're putting your trust in the wrong places, whether it's the chariots, the horses, wherever it is, you know, the Republicans, (laughs) you name it. You're putting your trust in all these things, and your deeds are atrocious. So he goes on to say, take care of the widow, the orphan. Uh, Don't shed innocent blood in this place. Don't walk after the gods you've chosen. If you can amend your, your ways, I'll let you live here. But if you can't, destruction's coming, and we know what happened eventually. And uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, calling the church to repentance and calling people to pursue justice and righteousness. It's a tough task because you end up getting exiled you know, from people, but it's a task that we're called to nonetheless. So anyway, thanks, Ron. I appreciate your, your time. Uh, listeners, check him out, ronkrantz.com. You can find him on Facebook. He'll be uh, stirring up things there periodically. I know he does. Um, and uh, if you're looking to connect with him, you can do that there. So that's it for us. Grace and peace to you all. We'll see you next time.